This audio file is a production of the University of Chicago Law School. Visit us on the web at www.law.uchicago.edu. Chicago's Best Ideas, and uh, I have made it a point of pride to do the first in the CBI series. So I thought I'd just say a word about what the series is about for people that haven't uh, been here before. It's mostly about like higher quality box lunches. <laughs> uh, we take great pride in that, so I hope you're enjoying them. Two of them have special prizes inside, usually in the form of money, and you might want to look uh, a little uh, carefully. So... Um, at the law school's uh, 100th anniversary, we were looking for something uh, exciting to do. And uh, I was the dean at the time, and I was really in love with Penn & Teller, who some of you may have seen. And I contacted them, and I said, how about coming to the law school and doing like a centennial Penn & Teller thing, and blah, 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 blah. And we were also going to have like a cord across the midway to Rockefeller Chapel, and have that guy, whatever his name is, <laughs> Who, you know, walk up. I was younger. And um, it was going to be very exciting. And uh, I talked to Penn extremely briefly. And he said, um, bitingly, number one, you can't afford me. And uh, number two, uh, look, you guys do ideas. You don't need people like walking over a rope across the midway. You should just do something about ideas for the sentence. I mean, he didn't quite say it in those words. But, uh, but I thought, OK, so let's do something cheaper. And, uh, and so here we are. And so, so we try to have a few of these a year. And in the beginning, it was like, what's the best idea that ever came out of Chicago? Oh, it's the coast here. No, it's this. No, it's that. And uh, Mother's Day or something. And then we would have like, a talk about them. But I think people got tired about doing the same ideas over and over again. And so instead, people do, well, here's an interesting idea that I have, it's like more narcissistic, that is tied to great ideas that Chicago has produced over the years. So that's the idea of this talk. Uh, and I have a couple ideas for you. And uh, in Chicago fashion, I won't go too long, that way we'll have questions and answers, but you'll ask your questions quickly and I'll answer them quickly so that people who have questions uh, can get them out. And no matter what, we'll be done in an hour because I know that you have uh, classes and other things uh, to go for. So, I, I should have turned off the podcast for that. They don't need, uh, they don't need this stuff, but I think we're uh, ready to go. Okay? Okay, so uh, what do lawmakers do? That's the uh, title of the talk. And, you know, what, what does the talk even mean? Uh, what I want to do is think about what lawmakers do and compare it to what lawmakers used to do. Like, I sort of want to compare Obamacare to the Great Pyramids. I mean, that's sort of my goal in a way. Like, what's motivating the politicians and what's it about? And does the kind of a law we do now, what's the connection it has to law that people have been doing for thousands of years? And I don't mean law like everyday law. Like, there's a lot written about that. And of course, what the lawmakers do, they can't help themselves but be around while we spontaneously make the world a better place. No, I mean that sort of seriously. Like, we keep certain promises, and we have a negligence rule, and we do this, and we do that. Well, we've been doing those things for thousands and thousands of years. I mean, as old as we can find tablets, people have had rules like that. A little bit different, but very much the same. 
I'm not really sure that we should give lawmakers a lot of credit for those rules. I have a feeling that people who live in groups spontaneously you know, develop rules like that, and then they get reflected in the law. Law can help. It could punish you or do something if you don't keep those laws. So I'm assuming that you know there's a lot of stuff going on in law, but then lawmakers show up. They get elected or they win wars, whatever they do. And there's something they do. They modify law. They do extra contracts or property or corporate law or whatever it is they do. And that's sort of what I focus on. Like, what's the extra stuff they're doing? Who are they doing it for? And, and, and so forth. All right, so imagine that we just start that way with a traditional question. And somebody said to you, oh, you walk along the hallway and you see the sign, what do lawmakers do? Think of it as a quiz question. Like, how would you have answered it? And how do you think people would have answered it over the last hundred years who went to this law school? Well, there are a lot of answers. For example, there's a famous article by our own uh, Judge Posner uh, that's called, like, What Do Judges Maximize? Uh, it rankles some people even to hear the question, like, what do you mean, what do they maximize? Like, what does your mother maximize? You know, like, <laughs> well, what does she maximize? I mean, have you thought about that? Like, what, this assumption that, first of all, people must be maximizing something, and second of all, that they can only be maximizing one thing, people seem to find insulting. Now, scientists, I think, and anthropologists don't find this insulting at all. Like, a convenient way to think about the world is that people are motivated by something. Oh, they are preserving their species or, you know, whatever it is they're doing. So I don't think the question is meant, or the answer is meant insultingly. And so uh, that's a hard question. You know, judges are lawmakers, after all. I'm also interested in legislators. But think about it. What are they maximizing? You know, maybe uh, they try to make the world a better place. I mean, Posner would scoff at that. Uh, because what, what does that mean, they try to make the world a better place? You know, it could be, well, maybe they don't want to get reversed. That would be something we could measure. Maybe what judges maximize is staying out of trouble and not having the Supreme Court or future Supreme Courts reverse them. You know, that's a live theory that people at Chicago have studied a long time. By the way... If that's a Chicago's best idea, it's not a very big one, in my opinion. <laughs> like, that's a pretty low-level idea. To think our whole legal system's there. What are, what are Holmes and John Jay and Rehnquist and Cardozo have in common? They really try not to get reversed. <laughs> to me, that would be kind of pathetic. So I am looking for something a little grander or even a little more diabolical than that. You know, they must have other aims. Maybe they try to maximize the world in their own image. It might be that you have an idea about your own preferences, and maybe if you get elected to Congress or you get put on the appellate court, what you secretly do or biologically do, maybe you don't even know you're doing it, maybe the best predictor is they try to make the world more like the kind of world they think we should have. That might not be a bad description of some judges and some lawmakers and so forth. Again, I don't think we could show that. But a lot of Chicago work about this, try to think about the preferences of the judges or the senators, and is that what they end up doing? No, maybe much more likely, a much better theory that political scientists have is things like, no, what they're really doing is just trying to get reelected or promoted. And in that case, they don't, they suppress their own preferences. And they just try to match your preferences, so to speak. Or they look at the median voter, we might say, in political science. Uh, and then they try to have views that accord with the median voter, so that the median voter, like the 51% voter, will like them better and reelect them or give them money or, or whatever. You know, we see that, we'll see that tonight in the Democratic debates, I think, right? We'll think, well, within a certain audience, 
they're going to battle for the median voter in that audience in a way that might work without getting them in too much trouble in November. I mean, we're used to thinking that that way. But that might be what lawmakers do. And then presumably they do the same thing when they do things. They pass a uniform commercial code. They change criminal law. They criminalize this and decriminalize that and build prisons there and give welfare there. Maybe they're all aiming to try to please the Armenian voters. Again, there's a lot of theory about this. It's not my subject uh, uh, today, but it's a plausible uh, thing. I think for a lot of things, that is what lawmakers do, I'll just say. If you think about the sort of things I'm about to talk about, uh, Social Security, the home interest deduction, I mean, we could start listing a lot of things like that that I think pretty much are aimed at a majority of the population, right? Their politicians came to these things, and they think, well, think about Social Security. Wow, we can raise taxes from you know 90% of the people, and give it out to 60% of the people, and that's probably a really good thing. That will really make people happy, because the 60% will elect me, they'll like getting Social Security benefits, it'll be a combination of insurance and retirement and this and that and a pension plan, because they'll pay taxes. And some people will get hurt in the process. There'll be people who pay taxes who don't get money back. But I don't really care about them, the lawmaker might say. I really care about keeping the average person happy, the 51% of the population happy. Well, you never know who they'll be, so maybe I better make 60% happy to have a cushion. That might not be a bad description of a lot of policies uh, that we have. Notice those things. Now I'm getting closer to my... I'll eventually start my topic before we're done. Uh, notice, uh, but I want to give you a context. Notice there that... What's interesting about those things, something we're going to get to in a minute, is that uh, they're not easily undone, a subject we're about to get to. So if you put Social Security in effect, or you give people a deduction for interest on their home mortgages, and you've made 60% of the country very, very happy. And then if somebody else comes along later on and says, you know, this is dumb, it's bad public policy, let's remove it. It's very, very hard to remove at that point. It's not like getting people to stop subsidizing tobacco or something where 20% of the country might really like it. It's now you've really got a majority of the country that really likes this thing and is benefiting from it, is planning their lives around it. It's almost impossible to get rid of those entitlements, I guess we call them. So it's like an endowment effect, we would say, about those entitlements. Again, a very famous Chicago topic, really. Like, when does the Coase theorem not work, so to speak? When is it hard to get people to give up things they have, even if you could pay them for it, and, and, and so forth. So that, that's going to play a role uh, later on. Well, I want to start instead with a fairly simple assumption and topic, and then I want to show two things that follow from it so that we'll build toward a conclusion. But the thing I want to start with is a very uh, public choice kind of thing, another Chicago specialty. And it's that when I say lawmakers, I don't even want to know whether I'm talking about the lawmaker or I'm talking about the interest group who that is allied, aligned or allied, both words work, with the lawmaker. So I, I'll go back and forth between these. But for example, you know, there might be some senator who's powerful. Sometimes I think we should say, oh, that senator wants to do this. And by that I mean either that senator, or that senator is really just a stand-in, just an intermediary. There are a bunch of groups that are sponsoring that senator. Some are voting for her, some are giving her money, some are giving her a lot of money, some might be bribing her. I mean, there are all sorts of things they could be doing. It might be good, it might be bad. But there's kind of an interest group, or a set of interest groups, 
that are overachieving in a way. They're getting their way more than just their raw numbers in the vote. They're organized. And then they have a senator that they're sending money to or other favors to, or the other way around. There's a senator who's a political entrepreneur, and he thinks, how can I get elected? How can I get money? Ooh, I'll appeal to law students. That looks like a constituency, no one else. And then they'll start appealing to law students, and oh, more student loans, and less this, and more box lunches, and more. And then they build up support. And I mean, that's okay. I want to think of those as a lawmaker. A lawmaker is this alignment of interest groups and a lawmaker, and they're kind of in it together. And then we're trying to think, you know, how is it that they go about affecting law? What do they do that beats back other people who are disorganized and so forth? Now, the first thing to see about this group, and now we get to a super big Chicago topic, will surprise you a little bit. The first thing we see about lawmaking is that it's a very, very hard enterprise. It's, you know, there's almost nothing a lawmaker can do that lasts. It must be a very discouraging enterprise. Think about these interest groups. You can either think about the good ones or the ones that are just overachieving. <coughs> overachieving meaning getting more than you think they get in democracy. Because they must realize, well, everything they can do can just be undone later on. So we have our power. We're the law students. We get together. We're really lucky. We campaign hard. We go door to door. We elect you know, Bernie Sanders or whoever it is we want. And then, you're a little old, by the way, for the Bernie Sanders. Uh, did you see that this morning? The peak age is like 19 and a half of the people who really <laughs> love him. It's kind of exciting. Um, so, there are these 19 and a half year olds. They have their moment in the sun. Bernie Sanders is their guy. Imagine that it works, and they elect him. And now... He says to them, I'm so grateful. I mean, you own me. You know, come on. We know we're in this together. What, what, what do you want? And they say, well, 19 and a half. We'd like it to be easier to get into law school. We'd like this. We'd like that. We want our younger siblings not to be able to drive cars so that we can... I mean, they start listing all the things they want. These are all pointless because they must realize that their moment in the sun isn't going to last that long. They're ascendant for a short period of time. And eventually, other interest groups will push them out of the way. Other interest groups have probably been sleeping on the job. They're dispersed, they're disorganized. But if they see the 19-year-olds really benefiting, then these other groups will get together and organize and spend money on it, or political entrepreneurs will manage to organize them. And eventually they'll unseat the overachieving Bernie Sanders with his 19-year-old. And then the first thing they'll do is repeal all the laws that the 19-year-olds put into effect. They'll change them, and they might even punish the 19-year-olds for the laws, meaning if the 19-year-olds got extra uh, benefits for something, we'll turn to this shortly, uh, maybe they'll figure out a way to tax these people now when they're 20 and 21 to get back some of the extra money they got. So, for example, I'll just take a practical example. Tobacco producers, really, they were like the thing for a long period of time. They owned land, and they got subsidies, and... Tobacco was heavily subsidized by all of us, and they made a lot of money, but then we made them pay for it. Then the coalitions changed, and different people came to power, and then we raised taxes on cigarettes, and we raised taxes more, we got rid of various tariff advantages they have, and you know, overall, no, no, you know, I guess if you were a perfect tobacco maker, you'd know just when to sell your stock or something. But if you stayed in it for the long haul, or the people who buy stock saw that you were on the downside, then, you know, I don't know. I don't know that they did so. They did very well in one period. They did worse than average in other periods. You, you, you see what I'm getting at. It, it wasn't really a durable piece of law. 
they didn't really gain that much by having uh, senators in their camp. Almost everything can be undone. This is very hard to get used to if you're a law student. You read cases and statutes and you think, wow, we're going to change the law and make it this. And you realize, you know, calm down, because (laughs) unless it's a law that you've really figured out that will appeal to a majority of the population over the long haul, almost everything can be undone. Well, one way to think about it is, if you're in power, what do you want the rule about undoing law to be? We call this in law right rules about retroactivity. What do you want the rule to be? People come, oh, no, no, you can't have retroactive law. The Constitution says no ex post facto laws. Well, first of all, that's been held to apply only to criminal law. And second of all, it's absurd if you think about it. I mean, of course that's not the law. Every time you like change, you're changing the law in the past. Every time tax rates go up or down, you're upsetting expectations of some people in an earlier time period who never would have built those factories or done whatever they're doing if they had known what the future would bring. So you can always undo the past, and law allows it. Short of making up a new crime and throwing you in jail for it, you know, almost anything else. But is that good or bad? Well, from the point of view of the lawmaker, it's a shrug-the-shoulder kind of thing. It's kind of getting close to the first point. On the one hand, they don't care. Think about it this way. Either the rule is that you can undo all past laws. In that case, they're very powerful. They can undo Obamacare. On the other hand, they're powerless. Because whatever it is they do today can be undone by the people in the future, right? So under one rule, you're very powerful backward-looking, but you're very impotent forward-looking. The other rule might be, that's it, no retroactivity. Law is law forever, unless it's found unconstitutional or something. Well, again, it's just the reverse if you're a lawmaker. It just means, you know, the opposite of the thing. You can't change anything in the past. But on the other hand, if you pass a new law, you know that people in the future can't change it at all. So you and your interest groups are probably indifferent as to whether the rule is one of strong retroactivity, weak retroactivity, some combination of the two. That, that can't be where power is coming from. Although we'll revisit that shortly. But once you put it that way, you realize, oh, this is kind of an interesting game. They pass laws, and then they know that people in the future can change the law. So at first they think, well, there's really nothing I can do. When the interest interest group comes to me and says, we really think we want to be aligned with you, we'll give you money, we'll do this, what what will you do for me? That's my job. I want to appeal to the interest group. The answer is, well, at first class, there's really nothing I can do for you, because whatever I'll do for you, some future guy will come and undo. And then I think, well, that's the trick. I'll be more valuable to an interest group. I, the lawmaker, will be more valuable to the interest group. And in turn, the interest groups will love me more. I'll be a more important legislator. The more I can think that whatever the retroactivity rules are, I can fool them in a way. I can bypass them. I can think of laws that cannot be changed. That's what I want to call durable laws. I can, now, again, I want to emphasize, I'm not a, total, I'm not a cynic at all, actually. I'm actually quite idealistic. I want to emphasize from an idealistic point of view, the very best way to have laws that are durable is to come up with really good laws. I mean, if you have a really, really good law, brilliant decision in court, or a statute that's really clever, you come up with a better tax system than anyone's ever seen before. And the gains will be so great that nobody in the future will ever be able to build a coalition to undo it. You'll be like 
Solon or Napoleon or Learned Hand or whoever your role model is, uh, you'll think, people will say, oh, that, that was the law that they passed. And so that's one way to be durable is to be fantastic. No, no question about it. Most lawmakers are not that good for reasons that I'll get to in the last part of the talk. No, they're just looking to get along with an interest group and push something forward. And another thing, is there anything I can be to do that's really durable? I think I've tried to, at least I've tried to convince you that the way to start is to think, the baseline is to think, no. Anything you do can be done. Let's, let's try a few of them. Student loans. Oh, get a lot of loans out of people, make it easier at low interest rates. Well, that's a joke. Any future Congress can raise the interest rates. There's no benefit. If you think the interest rates are locked in, that's wrong. But if you think they're locked in, they can always change the inflation rate or the tax rate to make that interest rate seem really high. They can make future loans be very, very cheap for people to make your loans higher. Or they can change the exchange rate. I mean, a lot of things they can do to change the value of loans. Or they can put greater penalties on people who don't pay them back. Or they can reduce the deductibility of interest rate on loans in general. So there are a lot, a lot of things they can do. Or, oh, how about this? Why don't they just raise the tax rate on lawyers? <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. Totally allowed constitutionally. They'll raise it. First, they'll raise the income tax rate on all affluent people. Then some people might think, no, that's not so popular. Well, okay, let's just raise it on lawyers. We'll make something up. You know, that lawyer works because they're using the courts, but the courts are provided by the government. You really are getting a benefit. So therefore, our tax rates are good. We have too many lawyers, so we'll raise the tax rates on lawyers. That'll be fine. They're perfectly allowed to do that. There are excise taxes on tires. There could be excise taxes on, on lawyers. And then someone might even be more refined and say, well, now you're getting all lawyers, and that's not fair. Some of them didn't borrow money. Not many of them, by the way. <laughs> but okay, is there a way we could raise income tax on lawyers that tries to really get back exactly the money we gave them from those own old loan programs? Well, sure there is. We could give people tax credits for some things. We could say, if you never borrowed money, or you borrowed under $20,000 from the government in your life, then you get a tax credit because we want to thank you for not doing that. Well, then you're home free. So you raise the income tax rate on all lawyers, you give an extra deduction of credit to people who never borrowed money, now you've basically recaptured all the old loans. It's not very fancy drafting, right? You can do this, almost do this over and over and over again. Well, now I think, I hope your wheels are spinning and you're beginning to think, oh, I see some things that are not so easily undone. And the one, one that I want to get to today is spending. So say I have an interest group that like, doesn't like to commute to a job, they want a faster way to get there, and I propose building a bridge. We're going to build a suspension bridge, it'll be very expensive, but it'll be a quick way across the river. The local communities love it, we'll go back and forth, there might be a few people who live far away, who don't like it or do like it, I don't know, they don't pay much attention. Steel workers might like it, and then I might find a few interest groups, and I become their guy. And they elect me and I build a bridge. Now look at the genius of building a bridge, because I build a bridge when this interest group is in its heyday, and then maybe three years later, people realize, my God, this is like the bridge to nowhere. I mean, this bridge just connected this town to the mainland, and there are only like a few thousand people living in the town. And this is like, I remember that Sarah Palin bridge. And what was the point of that? I mean, but, but what did they do? Like, uh, okay, you got me. We built that bridge because it only made the 100 people in this room better off. You're right. Cost 
cost-benefit-wise, it was the worst bridge ever built. But there it is. It's bleeding. I mean, what are they going to do? Blow it up? You know, no one's going to gain by destroying the bridge. And so this is actually very, very hard to undo. Now, you might say, not so fast. We could suddenly put a toll on the bridge and charge you. But the problem is, if you've thought about it, that when you have a bridge that's really inefficient, kind of an interesting irony, the more inefficient the bridge, the more people don't really need it that much, or fewer people need it, the more when you raise the toll on the bridge, even they stop using the bridge. And then you've got a bridge, and you're not even getting revenue to pay the guy who paints the bridge. That's actually very hard. That's a brilliant piece of lawmaking, building that bridge. If you and your interest group can... Be well, maybe you get the idea that it's interesting. Maybe there's a very interesting idea here that lawmakers and their interest groups tend towards spending programs rather than regulatory programs, because, and certainly rather than small governments. Think of three things they could do. Smaller government, more regulation, more spending. More spending is far and away the most durable of the three if structured right because it's hard to go back and get the money, it's hard to change it. Regulation, any regulation you think of, I can undo it in the past. Taxi cabs, Uber, I mean, you get the idea. You could change everything, and you could change it with a vengeance, uh, if you want. The taxi cabs might think they were better off years and years, and now their medallions are dropping the value even faster than they can drive. I mean, it's really kind of breathtaking, but that's law. Law is, they lost their coalition of power, and now, retroactively, we're undoing taxi regulation. It happens that most of us think it's an efficient deregulation. But this is not about efficiency or inefficiency. It's about whether the interest group bargain with the lawmaker was really uh, a powerful thing or a durable thing uh, in, in the first place. You know, this gives me uh, some appreciation of durable lawmaking in the past. I mean, uh, think about uh, the Great Pyramid, which I referred to in the past, or the Roman aqueducts. But the Great Pyramid is a much better example for me. So sometimes that's called the age of monumentalism, that the things that were built, to picture these pyramids, they're built, they're huge. We marvel at how they were built. And their social utility is like close to zero. <laughs> I mean, they really don't do anything. I mean, thousands of people probably died and were enslaved building them. And, you know, I guess there's some utility from tourists who go visit them now. But that's pretty small. And by the way, the present value of that pleasure back then when they were built is very, very close to zero. So I'm not going to, I think the value that we now can see the pyramid, that could, be, could not have entered Ramses' utility function. <laughs> I mean, that seemed, I, even if he took it all into account, even if he was a perfect lawmaker, its value would have been you know, very close to zero. So, but he had a powerful interest group. He controlled you know, a very important economy, and he wanted to last forever. He wanted to be durable, right? He's doing exactly what my talk is about. And, you know, what did he have? Like, they hadn't invented taxis yet, so he couldn't regulate taxis. He couldn't allow Uber. He couldn't forgive loans to students. I mean, they didn't have programs, for reasons we'll see in a minute. They had structures. And the way to be durable was to build the pyramid. By the way, it's amazingly overbuilt. Now, here's where we get the Roman aqueducts. Some of these still stand thousands of years later. They're Roman aqueducts that worked carrying water for 1,500 years. So you're probably thinking, wow, those guys really knew how to build. Our 
bridges are collapsing after 40 years. A lost movie did renovation after 60. And even now, what is this? Um, I think that's the wrong way to look at it. The pyramid and the aqueduct, they were vastly overbuilt. What a waste to build something, all that labor, to build something that lasted for thousands of years. Like, that's way too long. It couldn't be that Ramses really walked... Now, you know, there are two explanations to that, by the way. One is, maybe they just didn't know enough engineering, and they knew a really big stone will last a long time. And 204,000, like, you know, okay, they got it wrong a little bit. That's a serious possibility, because I kid you not, serious literature about this. But another possibility is, I think a really brilliant one, is that the society, the interest groups, the people, they wanted their leaders to care about the future. They wanted leaders to do something other than be selfish. And what better way to get the leader to care about the future than to have the leader believe that he'll lead forever. That's one possibility. You're immortal, they might say to him. That would be good. Then you care about the well-being of the people for a long period of time. Or how about you're divine. That would be really great. If you could talk the guy into thinking he's divine, then not only would he think he was immortal, but he would think that his children were immortal, and then he would be happy to pay. I mean, that would be great. So short of modern, perfect, egalitarian democracy, I think if we lived in ancient times, we had a choice. You want a regular old selfish leader who'll just kill, maim, conquer, maximize the number of horses and spouses he has, whatever it is they want to do in their short lives, or convince the guy he's immortal. Immortality was like a brilliant move, I think. And I think it was a good way of convincing them. Uh, to me, immortality means try to have a long time horizon. That's really what you want to say to your rulers. Not bad. I mean, we wish we could say that to our present rulers. When you build a bridge, try to think about the fact that we'd still like it to be here in 50 years. I mean, if only they would think that. Right? If you say you're opposed to Obamacare or something, think about modern programs. If you thought that Obama would be president for 50 years rather than for eight, I think you'd have a lot more confidence in Obama. You'd think, well, he's going to care a lot about the cost of the program as well as its benefits, because he's going to be there when the costs come in, the benefits come in. A 50-year horizon would really be fantastic. Next president, you know, you'd like a 1,000-year president if you care about climate change. You want them to really care about a long period of time. So, of course, we have reasons for throwing them out of office every six months or whatever it is we do. But long-time horizon is not a dumb idea, and it drives home the spending program idea. Notice how much luckier we are than ancient Egypt, because, because we have communication, news, internet, newspapers, books, etc., TV, our guys are semi-immortal. You know, we think about the old days, all they could do was build a pyramid, and that was the way to be there a thousand years later. But now we know, it's like Franklin Roosevelt. I mean, he understood, if I do the New Deal, and I start Social Security, and I take a lot of people out of poverty, that will really be my legacy. People will really remember that. Because it's not a structure they'll remember. It's my program will be remembered. I don't think Ramses could have possibly thought that. They, who would know where the program started and how it came about? You know, there were very, very few written words, and not many people read them, and there were no YouTubes. Did you know that? They didn't have YouTube. <laughs> and all that sort of thing. So I think, actually, we're both better off and worse off, right? You see the ending of my first point. We're better off because our leaders who want to be durable, they don't have to 
build the Great Pyramids. They don't have to have a useless structure that will last a long time. They can have a legacy in the form of a program, like Obamacare, let's say. Obamacare, attached to his name, is a legacy that is certainly, whatever you think of Obamacare, socially you know, a million times more useful than some triangle in the desert. <laughs> you know, it's unbelievably more useful. That's really great. The downside is that there are more options. Instead of, oh, pyramid, I got one of those already, I guess the modern lawmaker can come up with program after program after program, and it might be that four out of five of them are inefficient, and would rather they didn't have those. So they have more degrees of freedom, which is bad if you don't like big government spending. On the other hand, I think it's surely good in that the typical program produces much more social benefit. The legacy now is much better than the legacy of the monumentalism period. So that's one idea. I want to put that to the side just for a moment. Now, the other idea is, when I, I thought about this last night, by the way, I actually had this dream in which there was a great sphinx of Reagan, like in the desert. <laughs> and it, I was going to come in and say that, and I thought, no, that, you don't really understand what I mean. But like, we should be happy we don't have that. <laughs> Instead, the Reagan legacy is something like, say, deregulation or something. Whatever you think of a deregulation, it's a thousand times better than a great sphinx with the guy's face on it. No comparison. That's sort of my point there. What do lawmakers do? They try to be durable, and boy, it's a good thing that durability now can come in the form of programs rather than structures. That's message one. Message two, and it's hard to undo them. Message two. Um, well, do lawmakers innovate enough? I mean, what they're supposed to do is change, right? Any lawmaker could come in and say, I'm going to continue exactly what happened before. And say, no, people probably wouldn't vote for them. They either want to hear that everything before was bad and I'm going to make it smaller, or they want to hear that everything before wasn't enough and I have new programs that will make it better. People want change. I find that in my In fact, I'm, I feel like... Sometimes I am accused correctly, I think, of liking change for change's sake. Like, change is interesting. It's entertainment values. It makes you feel like part of a vibrant society to try things out. So, for better or worse, lawmakers are definitely into change. But it raises the interesting question of what their incentives are to change well. I mean, think about it this way. I'm teaching copyright now. Think about patent law, copyright, trade secrets, all that. If we announce tomorrow for the private sector, we said, you know, from now on in the private sector, of course we like some change and innovation, but you know what? We're getting rid of all intellectual property. No more. I think everyone would, some people like a little more open source and a little less and a little, you know, pirate a song here and there. But I think if I said, there'll be no more patents, no more copyright, no more trade secrets, no more anything. I think everybody would say, whoa, that sounds like a really bad thing. People need incentives to do things, and if every time you invented a new cure for a disease, everybody could copy it, nobody would be in labs producing cures for diseases. I think we might not like drug prices, but we believe that some intellectual property is important. But that raises the very Chicago-ish question of always to compare it to what? Of, well, wait a minute. Why don't we have IP in the public sector? Think of all these wannabe pharaohs and Obamas and all that. If they have a good idea, they can't make any money out of it, straightforward. There's no property right in Obamacare or the Great Pyramid. There's no patent. There's no copy. In fact, they're not allowed to have a copyright. 
By the way, government employees at some level can get patents if the government doesn't claim complete ownership and then they get 15% royalties on the government use. I mean, there's a whole set of rules. Just, if you're studying patent law, I don't want to mislead you. But by and large, the lawmakers themselves, like think of the guy who thought of the Uniform Commercial Code and then the legislature that had to enact it. They get zero return. There's no patent or copyright or anything of the sort. Which should make you think, well, wait a minute. I mean, that seems like we're not going to get enough innovation. If there's no return, not enough innovation, or else the private sector's wrong. Now, I, I think I know what you're thinking. Oh, no, they get reelected, they become famous, they get like you, like you remember, which legislators put these in effect. In any event, that's not really answering the question, because in the private sector, people also get reputation. You know, if Steve Jobs had never had any property rights, he'd still be known as the guy that brought this computer to market, assuming he had incentive to bring it to market. And that might work. You know, who knows? So in the private and public sector, people can achieve fame or beloved things by their supporters. But in the private sector, we seem to think that you need much, much more than that. And it's quite interesting that we don't give that in the public sector. In fact, we don't even let them get repeatedly reelected. We don't give them returns at all. Now, this is a big topic, uh, which we don't have time for today, but you can begin to think about it. Like, well, maybe, uh, maybe we don't want them to be first movers. Another big Chicago idea is identifying areas where it's better to go first or better to go second or a little later. <laughs> I think we all know this from our own lives. There's sometimes McDonald's, for example, is a famous example of a first mover company. There's a new road or whatever. They identify where to open stores. They buy the land. They build the McDonald's. Wendy's, by the way, is a famous example in that small market of a second mover. We call them copycats, but whatever you want to call them. They wait for McDonald's to open, famously. They don't have a department of location. They wait for McDonald's to open, and then they buy available land nearby. <laughs> it's not a bad strategy for either one. They think, well, McDonald's is very good at identifying highway intersections that are good for fast food. So we'll have the second best location. We'll go diagonally across, and you know, it's not quite as good, but it's pretty good. Every once in a while, they try to fake each other out, but the pattern is not bad. It's sort of like knowing someone in college who really knew all the good courses or all the easy courses or whatever, just thinking, I'm doing whatever they do. You know, it's not a crazy strategy for either one of you. So that's a possibility in government, that maybe we don't want our legislature to be the first to do a value-added tax pick one example. Maybe all these states are waiting for other states to do a value-added tax, and then if it works, we'll copy them. That's a recipe for disaster, right? I mean, that's a good example. We don't like our tax system, but nobody wants to experiment. It's a, you know, if you're the lawmaker and you experiment with a new tax system or a new this or a new that, and it doesn't work, businesses leave, revenues go down, you're, kind of, you, you're really in trouble. I mean, the cost of failure is enormous. The cost of more or less doing things as you did before and whining a little bit, that's how you get reelected. So this is a real danger thing, that maybe there's a lot of innovation that we don't do because all, everybody's waiting for everybody else to do it and so forth. We have examples. I think most of the examples we have of innovation come not from lawmakers, but from grassroots. So for example, whatever you think of vouchers and charter schools, I think that's a good example of innovation in our time. But it didn't come from lawmakers. No lawmaker said, Milwaukee public schools are broken, let's try vouchers. No, it was grassroots parents and academics and think tanks that said, you know, 
It's hard to imagine the school getting any worse. Let's try an experiment. And they basically forced the Wisconsin state legislature to say, well, okay, we'll allow you to do it. By the way, even that innovation got there because of the homeschooling revolution. But there were a lot of people like, the school is terrible. I'm going to educate my kid at home. And at first, states, lawmakers were like, no, 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 no. If you do that, we'll throw you in jail. And after a while, a lot of people started doing it, and it became embarrassing for lawmakers to throw people in jail when their kids could read and write and all that. So, I mean, it's a very interesting kind of, it's the opposite of the way innovation is supposed to take place in law. You'd think some lawmaker and interest group, the teachers should be saying, let's try this and get a senator on their side. Instead, they're all sticking to the old curriculum, so to speak, while parents and other things are trying um, something new. I mean, there are a lot of examples like this. Colorado's uh, cannabis law is kind of similar when you think about it. No politician stood up and said, you know, we're over-criminalizing all this drug stuff. Let's just try weed. If you want it, they're all afraid. But instead, it's kind of a grassroots, oh, that, little, little grassroots movement. And then politicians, like, grudgingly come along. I think there's reason to think that maybe lawmakers are insufficiently incentivized. Now, by the way, I don't really think that. I mean, uh, I think uh, it's complicated. I think that lawmakers aren't really meant to be innovators. The innovators are people who come up with the idea of a value-added tax, take that example. The lawmaker is like the CEO. The lawmaker is the person who's supposed to take that idea and build the coalition and execute it, you know, put it into effect. So there's an inventor who gets rewarded but then there's the chief executive of the company who takes that idea and actually figures out how to market it, distribute it, and then maybe pays a royalty for the patent. That seems to be a little bit more what government's like, that our lawmakers are a little bit, it's a hard business they run. They gotta not only do what the business executive does, but also get a coalition to pass it into law. They can't just go to the board of directors and say, here's what we're doing. They need approval. Uh, maybe the president can do it by executive order, but most of them at the state level uh, they need approval. So I'm, I guess I'm not so worried that we don't give them IP, so to speak, but I think it's something to keep in mind. There are examples, and I'll begin to wind down with this, there are examples where I think states could get together. It's like, I'm going to sneak a coast theorem thing in here, for those of you learning it for the first time. Uh, I think it's a, if it's a good idea to have IP protection, they can do it on their own. They don't need law. So, for example, you can imagine, here's a thought experiment, 10 states could get together and say, you know, this value-add tax thing that they use in Europe, it really seems like much better than our sales tax or this tax or that. Like, we should try it. And again, in my world, each one goes, yeah, you, you try it first. Because if it flops, I mean, we never met. <laughs> and then they might say, well, how about this? How about, of course, if you try it, it works in Indiana, you can be sure that we in Illinois are going to copy it right away. That's what happens to lotteries, for example, in school vouchers and charter schools. So maybe 10 states can get together and say, we think it would really be a good experiment for one or two states to try the value-added tax. And then no one's going to say, yeah, we'll, we'll try it. So, okay, we'll pay you to try it. How about we all get together and we bargain for innovation? So, for example, one possibility would be uh, every, sta every state governor writes down how much you'd have to pay their state for them to be the experimenting states, and then the low bidder would experiment. That's a very fancy double Chicago blind auction thing. But you can imagine being a less, little less complicated. Like if you pay me, you pay me, you pay me. Or they could just say, 
Well, you don't have to pay me anything, but agree now that if your state copies, if you pass a value-added tax in the next 10 years, because suddenly your voters see that it works in Indiana, then you owe us money. Oh, that would be kind of, you can even imagine Congress imposing that. So I think there is room for states to agree on experiments. Um, we have no examples uh, of this, by the way. Very, very rare. So companies run experiments all the time, and CEOs get a lot of credit for running experiments. If they fail, they say, you know, I tried it. I tried this new product in a small market, and it didn't work, and okay, we're done. And everybody goes, oh, what a great guy. Experiment, good, good, change. When the government does that, when our government does that, people go crazy. They go, first they're mad. How come you're not giving me the experiment? And then when it fails, they say, you know, you're a bozo you are. <laughs> Playing with people's lives, experimenting with schools or something. It's very, very, very hard uh, to experiment successfully uh, at the government level. I think that's our failure in a way, that we're not uh, sympathetic to experiments. We don't reward failed experiments, which in a way is what we uh, need to do. So you got the idea, now I'll stop. The idea is both strands, that what is it that makes law durable and why interest groups like their lawmakers, and the do we think lawmakers are innovating enough, they're both strands of this idea that, uh, see how to say this politely, they're both strands of this idea that governments love to spend. They don't really like to regulate as much as it seems because it can go wrong. They don't like to innovate as much as it seems because that can go wrong. What they really gain from is new spending programs. Oh, let's give money over there, subsidize this, solar panels for everyone, bridges. Some of them might be efficient. Some of them are probably really inefficient because the costs don't come home for much later. But this pressure, both from making durable things and from the disincentives to innovate in other ways. Everybody's happy, oh, let's innovate, build me a bridge, let's see if it works, right, fine, fine. And the people all over the rest of the country just think, well, it's just costing us eight cents each. We don't really uh, notice. This seems uh, unhealthy to me, that we have stacked things in a way to make spending programs be what lawmakers do. Uh, that's really what they want to do, it's what we reward them for doing. That feels like a real uh, uh, I'm going to take questions or comments now. I'll just say that I'm hoping that um, somebody asks uh, a question about, well, what about modern innovations like Obamacare and same-sex marriage? Because I wouldn't mind fitting them into the talk. But I think given our time and the, need, the desire for questions, we should pause there for our questions. Your turn. Oh, here's my experience. the beginning, everybody's slow. They don't want to ask a question. They don't want to seem like that kind of person. And then when it's over, they think, oh, I should have raised my hand earlier. So, you know, you be the judge. Please. I appreciate the first question. So how do you think we should incentivize lawmakers? Well, I don't, I don't know, even know what the word should mean. I, 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 and why you trust me? <laughs> You seem to have uh, interesting ideas. I, I guess education. I mean, I think we really need to convince our population, and we have a monop almost a monopoly on their education, we need to convince them that a government that experiments and then explains what failed in the experiments and what worked in the experiments is really a great government. That's not the way we bring people up. There, there are examples of this in American history, but you have to rack your brains to find examples of this. I mean, first of all, there are very few examples where our presidents, for example, say, 
I did the following and it was an error, and I'm sorry, and here's what I've learned from it, even though that's what we'd want them to do. And that must mean that they often don't experiment where they would want to experiment. So I think building up a culture where experiments are welcome is probably the single most important thing to do. And the other thing, if you believe about both innovation and spending programs, I think the key there is for people to understand how there's such a strong incentive for spending. So, you know, I, I would, I think there should be much more compensation after the fact. So, you know, I, we didn't go into that today, but, you know, you could have said, when I gave my examples of the loans and the bridges, well, why don't we just have a rule? If that after the fact, we decide that the thing you got or your interest group pushed for was inefficient, that then we go say to you, you know, that bridge, that was really bad. It cost $3 billion. We want just compensation. We want to be compensated for that bridge after the fact. In other words, every bridge should pay for itself with tolls, and if it doesn't, then after the fact, we extract money from you. What I tried to show with the bridge case is that we don't have a way of extracting money. Because if we charge more money, they won't use the bridge. That's not true for other innovations. We can figure out who gains and tell them, you know, you're, you're better off with Social Security, you're better off with tobacco subsidies, or you think you are, but don't spend the money too fast. Because if in five years it becomes clear this was a bad program, we're getting the money back from you because we don't want you to push for the program in the first place. I don't think we're prepared to run the world that way. But that's how corporations are run when you think about it. They make a mistake, they, okay, I think that's not a bad model, but very, very hard uh, to carry out. Yep. It seems like in contrast to a bridge, a spending program is a lot more easily cut. Um, so I'm thinking about FDR's New Deal programs. A lot of them don't exist anymore. Like what? Um, like conservation well, because it morphed into the Department of Interior and the Forestry with one to three hundred times this budget size. Okay. Can you have another one? Say subsidies to artists. Subsidies to artists. No, it morphed. It's the National Endowment for the Arts, which has a per capita budget that you might not think is big enough, but it's much greater than even in the peak of the Great Depression. Okay, so... Do you want to try for another one? No, I, I don't think there are any, actually. So let me... Is that, is that amazing? Yeah. yeah. Um, so when the name of the program changes or it turns into mm. something else, does that decrease its durability to the program? Oh, that's good. I like that. Quick switch there, save yourself. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's very good. So, for example, there are famous things that are associated with people's names. You know, Dodd-Frank, Glass-Eagle Banking Act. You might want McCain-Feingold campaign finance reform. Those might be examples of durability. Like, we attach the names of the politicians to try to show you, well, we know that you just want to build more bridges, John McCain. So you know what? Come up with a campaign finance reform, and we'll attach your name to it, and it'll be as if you're carved into Mount Rushmore. That's really not a bad strategy, you know, to try to give them some Benny of fame uh, tied in over there. Yes, and that's, that's, that, that could have been an answer to the first question. That's very, very clever of the society, in a way. And of course, if it turns out to be a bad law, then maybe the person will be embarrassed. Now, that's a shame. Right? In my world, oh, that'll discourage experiments. You almost want, run an experiment, if it works, we'll give you a lot of credit. And as long as it has a sunset clause, as long as it's really just an experiment, it's not like a bridge, it's the opposite of a bridge, then when it fails, we'll say, good for you for trying, and we'll never tell anybody your name. <laughs> Again, I don't think that's realistic. That's not the way our world works, actually. Plus, you know, these bills, it's usually the media. Those aren't the real names of the bills. 
it's the media have attached names to the bills. But the idea is, is interesting. No, the spending programs don't, don't really seem to go away. And I, you know, even though they're not attached to results. Um, Mm-hmm. So if we want to encourage if we want to encourage experimentation potentially, does that argue or would you argue for an expansion expansionary role be administrative state effectively so that politicians can be isolated from the experimental role and you can have these administrative agencies that might not necessarily have as much political accountability, right, do these things and politicians be like, oh that was terrible, that was terrible. But in reality, right, they're at least experimenting and they're doing that. No one there's no real repercussions for the experimentation. Yeah. I'm gonna repeat the question before I pound all over it. Um, <laughs> um, the question is, well, maybe we should try to divorce lawmaking from lawmakers, essentially, and uh, have bureaucrats, you know, admit, maybe we should become France, and we should have, like, administrative agencies that engage in these experiments and try them and pull back from them and, and so forth. Well, I, I think you're, it's a good idea. I mean, I, I like the thought behind it. Uh, I, I have a sort of personal bias here, which is, uh, I feel like the agencies are way oversold. I'm not a fan of uh, the delegation to agencies compared to other people in this building, uh, certainly. I would say a, one out of three topics at faculty lunches is something going on and on about how we ought to give something to an agency, and then somebody like me like, grinding their teeth and giving example after example of where the reverse took place. And by reverse, I mean I think that the bureaucratic buy-in and inertia is even a stronger problem. That, you know, it's very hard to think of examples where agencies started something, employed 11,000 people doing it, and then said, you know, it's really not such a good idea. You know, we really don't need to inspect factories for that anymore, and now we're going to let go of these 11,000 employees, or we'll turn them into postal work. Oh, no, we should be cutting that back, too. We'll turn them into FedEx competitive. It just never happens. So I think that it's even a worse problem at the agency level because people like the big bureaucracies they govern, because there's employment, because the employment itself comes from districts where the senators then want to protect the jobs, and so forth. Now, that does suggest an alternative, but it's not going to get us anywhere either, where maybe the agency should be instructed that short of some supermajority rule, you can never increase your number of employees, you have to outsource experiments. Outsourcing might be a good way to experiment. We want to try something, but we don't want to feel locked into it. So we give it to some company. You know, Coca-Cola can try this. Well, but as you know, that creates another whole set of problems, and Coca-Cola then lobbies to continue it, and there are other inefficiencies. So I don't think it's a problem of our government particularly. I think it's a problem of human nature, of the people getting together to, you know, the 51% or even less trying to exploit the 49%. And majority vote, all the things we love about democracy, they also cause this problem of taxing you to benefit me and so on. Can you talk about Obamacare and same-sex marriage? <laughs> <laughs> Did you know they were one topic? And I'm going to twist them together. I think well, Obamacare and same-sex marriage seem to be kind of interesting examples that are a little bit orthogonal uh, to the stock. But they, I was thinking about this. They, they have something in common, which is that here's a typical complaint about lawmaking. People will say, well, uh, imagine that you were a critic of, uh, I don't know, you could, you could be either one. 
I, I guess same-sex marriage is much more politically correct, so for Chicago fun, let's imagine we were going to criticize that. <laughs> so then we would say, well, you know, there's something really a little weird about this kind of lawmaking, you might say. Because what it is is that, I, I want to emphasize, in the paper that I hope to write about this, I give same-sex marriage as an example of, it's shocking that so few politicians came out early to same-sex marriage. That's a real example of the failure of experimentation. Like, it's unbelievable. In fact, shame on us now for making believe we credit politicians. Oh, yeah, yeah you, you then were in favor of same-sex marriage. And for 20 years, they were like, no, no, not in my lifetime. No, I will not go that far. Oh, now they see 60% of the country thinks it's a good idea. Well, it's high time we had same-sex marriage. <laughs> I mean, I can't believe it. I, 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 I honestly, I take politics pretty personally. I look at these people on stage with disgust. Like, why don't they just fess up and say they were wrong or something? So the whole thing strikes me as really backwards. But okay. Now, having said that, you see, I think if you wanted to criticize the evolution, aside from criticizing the politicians, you'd say, there's something a little weird about these because... The idea comes up. Someone says, let's have civil unions. That's popular for a while. No, vote it down, vote it down, vote it down. This guy votes it up, down, down. Try again, next year, try again. Two years later, try again. Oh, now up, up, down, up. Oh, wow, civil union, it makes it. And then it morphs. Not enough, same-sex marriage. Again, it had been tried 40 years. Oh, okay, now we get a toehold, and same-sex marriage occurs. I think a... Martian who came to visit Earth would say, this is very strange lawmaking, because on Mars, they probably think of law as stochastic. You know, they just think there's these random elements called law, and you throw down some policy proposal, and then depending on what they have for breakfast, people vote for it or against it. It's kind of random. It's really hard to figure out exactly why people like some policies sometimes, not all the time. And then they say, look, if the rule of law down on Earth is zero precedent, you can keep proposing things, and people say, no, 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 yes. And then when they say yes, it's yes forever. On Mars, they might say, that's a very strange reaction effect. Like, I would have thought that when they say no, it means no for a long period of time or something. Otherwise, it seems bizarrely asymmetric. And what same-sex marriage and Obamacare have in common, uh, disability accommodations famously have this in common as well, is that uh, once passed, they're very hard to reverse. They're the opposite of the early things I started out with. We have a lot of people who are married under same-sex marriage statutes. Undoing that would be extremely difficult. And the longer it stays in effect, the more. Now, again, if you like same-sex marriage, as I happen to, then you think, great. But if you think about it ex ante as a lawmaking matter, and you realize, well, you might love same-sex marriage, but there are a lot of bridges to nowhere I don't like. And there are a lot of other things I don't. I mean, you realize, well, that's a very odd thing about our lawmaking system is that there are things that then build up these interest groups, which is what we all are, that are very, very hard uh, to undo. This is the problem, I think, of getting rid of government-sponsored loans to schools where people can't possibly get good jobs out of them. Remember, spending billions and billions of dollars a year funding people to go to chef school and law school and other schools that are so low down in quality that they've never had anyone repay the loan. I mean, it's really kind of amazing. Not a single person has repaid the loan in some of these schools. They've only managed to pay the accumulated interest, but nothing else. It's kind of amazing. 
But it's a real reaction effect, because once you give the money and the people show up and you build the school, then, you know, Tampa has a school downtown and they're going to protect it. It's very, very hard to get rid of that kind of spending. It's, again, the spending program. Obamacare, I think, is similar. So that's what they're saying is interesting about it, is that there's a ratchet effect to a lot of these things that they're not always spending programs. That's why same-sex marriage is a good example. But it's an interest group effect. It's building up a group that then will know what it likes and doesn't want to lose. And, you know, it might be healthy. I mean, just that we should realize that when laws we don't like are passed and seem hard to get rid of, we should just remember, and this is an optimistic thing, we should remember... You know, it seems like that law is an effect and we want to get rid of it, but there's a strong group in favor of it, and it's like a ratchet effect. But never, you should remember that there are people that are saying that about same-sex marriage or about a lot of other things. But it is an interesting feature of law. In courts, more or less, when the court says no, no is the precedential value for a period of time. In the legislature, when the legislature says no, it just means wait till next week. We'll vote on it again. And, uh, by the way, not every legal system. We have time for one more, I think. If, if that's the, the case, how do you contextualize the sort of fight against abortion rights, which has been, uh, for the past, you know, 40 years, slowly ratcheting back down in certain states as to what freedoms are allowed? Uh, I'm not sure I see the inconsistency. Where, where is the ratchet effect? I think it's easy to undo, first of all. Okay. Abortion strikes me as, like most law, retroactivity is the rule of the game. Okay. Because people who had abortions, there's no taking it back. And people who didn't have abortions, even if they wanted it, there's no taking that back. Okay. And there isn't that much government spending involved. And even if there were, there's no taking back. It strikes me as a, it's like tax rates. Okay. It, and I, by that, mean to elevate them both, not deprecate them both. It's uh, a law that's, uh, hold your breath. You never know what's going to happen next week. Uh, so I think that fits. I mean, it doesn't seem to me to create uh, an interest group that really, especially as people age, people like to care about abortion more at some age in their lives and so forth. So I think it's a actually strong example of the power of retroactivity. There's almost nothing a politician can do to be durable about abortion law. They, short of the constitutional amendment, which requires much more than any one politician, they can't really promise you to be pro-life or pro-choice for a long period of time. All I can try to move is the next increment. So again, that fits the first half of the talk, uh, I guess. It's uh, maybe easy to innovate. That might be, I can imagine a state saying, we're going to try this and see what happens to overall abortion rates and da da da. But uh, it reminds you how under So that's for some of you your first CPR. Thank you for coming, and uh, thanks for being so patient. This audio file is a production of the University of Chicago Law School. Visit us on the web at www.law.uchicago.edu.